Hey, we're so excited that you've chosen to join us here again for West Meadows at Home. And if you've been with us since around the middle of March when we started doing this online format, you know we've been walking through the book of Philippians. Well, we find ourselves today at the end of that book now. And hey, it's always good to end something on a good, positive note. And that's exactly what Paul does today. We're going to be talking about a few themes that, that circle around the idea of thankfulness and contentment. Now, when you hear that word contentment, I think we all have a bit of an idea, an experience of what that means. It's, it's technically defined as a state of happiness and satisfaction. This idea of being at ease within yourself. And, and as I kind of close my eyes and think about a moment of contentment I've experienced, it's, the first thing that comes to mind is, is like a nice, warm, sunny day. And sitting back in a chair and you can feel the warmth of the sun upon your face as you recline a little. Maybe you got a, your favorite drink in your hand, some favorite music playing in the background. All the chores are done. There's no distractions. You've got your eyes closed and you're thinking to yourself, this is the life. I am content. Maybe you can relate to that sort of an image yourself. Or maybe it's different for you. But let me ask you this question. What do you think you need to be content? And I don't just mean for an afternoon, a sunny afternoon, or, or for a day. What do you think you need to be content for your life? Now, some people will say things like, well, when, when I get married, when I've got that life partner, or, or when I have kids one day, then I will be fulfilled, and I can be content in my life. Other people look ahead to a time when they would finish their education, when, when they finally have that degree, or when they get that new job, or when they get that promotion, and they think, then I will have purpose in life, or, or maybe with the promotion, then I'll be under a boss who's a little less of a jerk than the one I got today. Other people, they think of contentment and their mind goes to possessions. When I have a bigger house, when I have a nicer car, when I've got that high-definition, widescreen TV, then I will be content and I can sit back and be at peace. Probably the most common one. Finances. I just, if I had more money, I could be free of debt. I'd have financial security and that would make me content. You know, I came across an article recently that was about an interview with a TV star, a lady who was actually in a state of depression. And that was part of the reason they were interviewing her. And she had all of these things. She had a husband, she had kids, she had a great job, she had possessions, she had finances, and yet she found herself in this state of depression. And in her own words in the article, she said this. She said, some days I just cry, and I can't find myself even coming to eat during the day. It's like I'm in this black hole of despair. And you know, if I'm honest with you, the, the internal dialogue that I have with myself is that I'm a detestable member of the human race. It's heartbreaking to hear her say that, but, but here's the thing. The journalist then continued the article with his own commentary. And as he closed the article, these are the words that he shared about this lady. He said, she's a very pretty woman who has a doting husband three adorable children, two golden retrievers, seven horses, a large house with its own theater room on 50 manicured acres. She has had an extremely successful career in TV and in movies, which has brought her a fortune. She should just thank her lucky stars. You see, according to this journalist, you take one husband and three kids, two dogs plus seven horses plus a large home on 50 acres plus success and money, you add that all together, and what do you get? 
contentment, according to this journalist. You see, in other words, just look at her circumstances. She has everything you could ever want, so she should just stop complaining and be content. And as you process that, I also ask you to consider how often do we find that that is how the world views contentment. The secret to finding contentment according to the world is just change your circumstances. Well, as Paul concludes this letter to the Philippians, he has something very different to say on this subject. He says that he has learned a different secret, a a truer secret to contentment, a contentment that exists no matter what the circumstances are. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a secret worth knowing. Imagine that no matter what you are going through, no matter what you experience, whether it is good or if it's bad, in times of victory or times of defeat, in times of joy or in times of sadness, contentment would be yours. You would be at ease within yourself in all circumstances. That's a secret worth knowing. And we're going to unpack that for the rest of our time today. Now, you might be thinking it's easy for Paul to speak about this stuff because he's, he's probably having a good life when he's writing this letter. And so we'd expect him to talk that way. But let's not forget his current predicament when he actually was writing this letter. We talked about this in week one. As he opens the letter, we know that he is far from an easy, carefree life. He is not in the midst of great circumstances. You see, he's writing from a prison in Rome. A prison that he would be in for two years. In addition to that, he was incarcerated for a few months in Palestine before arriving in Rome. And throughout this whole time, he has limited access. He has limited ability to to family, friends, finances, fun. And his future is totally up in the air. For all he knows, at any moment, the guards could come in, take him from that place, and he could be executed. Yet he's able to write in this letter to the Philippians what's referred to as the epistle of joy. You know, if you just take a few minutes and sit down and read these four chapters in one sitting, you will see joy. You will see why it's called the epistle of joy. Even just reading the first chapter of this letter, we see him writing things from prison as he says, I am thankful and I pray with joy. He says, I will continue to rejoice. He says, may your joy in Christ overflow as his is. And then he says, be glad and rejoice with me. It's the epistle of joy in the midst of these circumstances. These are not the words you would expect from somebody who is enduring Paul's circumstances in that moment. You see, in spite of the many needs that he currently had, these are the words of a content man. Now, the Philippian church had been supporting Paul for a long time. And they had been supporting him with their prayers, with their encouragement, with friendship, and yes, even financially. And when they heard that he was in this situation, when they heard he was in prison and an opportunity presented itself for them to help, they sent a financial gift to Paul. And that's actually one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians. It was to thank them for the financial gift that Epaphrodites had delivered. Remember, we talked about him back in uh, chapter 2. And he speaks of this gift as he opens this passage in verse 10 of chapter 4, where he expresses his sincere gratitude for all they have done and for all of the aid they've given him. But he expresses gratitude. However, in his next breath, he explains that while he may have needs, 
he certainly is not needy. And he says this in verse 11 and 12. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He, He is in need, but that's not his motivation for saying this. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well fed or if I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. See, just like us, Paul's life has some high points and it's got some low points. There are some good days where everything seems to be going great. And there are some not-so-great days where it feels like the world is against him and everything he touches goes wrong. But he claims to have found a secret. A secret to contentment in any, in all circumstances. A secret that endures the situation. Now the word content that he uses here was common in the day in which he's writing this letter. And the, the particular word he used for contentment was also used by Stoic philosophers of the time to specifically refer to and mean self-sufficiency. This idea that you could reach a point of contentment, not from outside things, but from looking within yourself. You could be content within yourself. And there's writings outside of the Bible that we've found, historians and archaeologists have found that support this, such as writings from the emperor uh, Marcus Aurelius, who's speaking of his adoptive father, who he thought very highly of, said he is the ideal man. Why? Because he is self-sufficient. They've also found writings from a politician named Seneca, who, who is also a Stoic philosopher, who said, a wise man may want many friends, but a truly wise man will have no need of them. You see, in this letter, as Paul's talking about contentment, he knows the same thing we do. Is that neither these insular nor these external views provide the secret to lasting contentment. We know this. We know that our inner feelings about ourselves, our our inner feelings about stuff in our lives change. We know that our outward circumstances continually tend to be in flux. This is why Paul says he has learned the secret. He has learned the secret to contentment because he's tried these other views, just like many of us have. He's tried them. He's experimented with them. He's found through trial and error that they don't deliver on the promises. And in the end, he arrives at a solution, a solution that is not found in ourselves or is found in the world around us, but is found in verse 13 of chapter 4 where he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Meaning, I can do all things through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. Now be careful not to misunderstand this verse when he says, I can do all things. This is not about God catering to our desires. We sit back and think, God, I would sure love to be that pro athlete. You know, the success, the fame, the money. Let's just do that, God. Or, or God, I'm going to jump off this building, so it would be great if in your strength you could just let me do all things and fly. These are obviously extreme examples, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. What he is saying is that God promises to give you what you need. He will meet you in the midst of a situation. He will celebrate in the midst of a situation when the times are good, and he will provide for you when times are tough. But he will give you what you need to endure. And through this, you will learn what contentment is. If you struggle with contentment, if it feels like it's this elusive pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you just never seem able to lay claim to, 
you know, if you came into my office with that question, here's the first one I would ask you. Where are you looking for the source of contentment? Are you looking to outward situations, possessions, relationships, such as the journalist of that magazine article suggested? Or are you looking inward to your own self-sufficiency, perhaps like the Stoic philosophers of Paul's day suggested? If so, I'm pretty confident that you too are learning the secret of contentment because you're learning it's not found in these things. And you might think that as these things fail you and this idea of contentment is elusive to you, you might think that you're failing, but let me remind you of this. The word fail is actually an acronym for first attempt in learning. And the first attempt in learning you're going through in that situation is you're learning that these things don't work. That what works is having a relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ. And one beautiful way I think we can understand this principle is by looking at a familiar parable. The parable of the lost son, found in Luke chapter 15. Now, the primary message of this parable is about Father God's abundant love towards, even his prodigal love, towards his children. And in this story, probably a parable you're familiar with, it actually, I think, reveals some understandings about contentment. Because consider for a moment the story, if you're familiar with it. It's about a father and two sons, but neither of the sons are content. The younger son, who we know quite well, is a bulk of the stories about him. We know at the start of the parable, he has a good life. He has family around him. He has fortune as he's uh, the son of the owner of a great estate. And he, therefore, has a future. But he's discontent. So he asks for his inheritance, and he goes off to the big city to, to live the life of partying and being popular and to indulge in all the things a young man wants to indulge in. And he goes from discontentment to experiencing momentary contentment. But then the money runs out, and so too do his friends, because he got to pay to play. And he finds fleeting contentment, which leads him to the lowest point he's probably ever come to in his entire life, where he decides to finally go back home and, and apologize to his father and seek forgiveness and, and see, can I even just work as a servant from my father? Not even a son, but, but a servant. And he experiences resigned contentment, resigning himself to what's available. But then as he arrives home and the father runs out to greet him and says, you are an honored son of mine. We need to celebrate. Put on a ring, put on sandals, put on a robe. Let's, let's get that barbecue fired up and get a calf on it because we're going to celebrate with great joy. Because in spite of what the younger son had done, he had returned and he found in the father true lasting contentment. But here's the thing. That was always available to him. Because even when he ran off and did his own thing for a while, nothing changed the fact that he was still a son of the father. The only thing that was missing is that younger son needed to come home and remain in relationship with the father. But that's just the first part, because there's also the older son in the story who did stay home, who says, nobody ever celebrated me. And so he doesn't go in to celebrate with his younger brother. So the father comes out to say, what's, what's going on? Why won't you come be with the family? And the older brother's grumper, grumpy and kind of bitter. And he says, if you're looking at Luke chapter 15, verse 30, he says, I have slaved for you for years. I've always obeyed you. And you've never given me even a goat to celebrate with my friends. Where's my goat? He kind of says to the father. 
And then the father responds in verse 31, my son, you were always with me. Everything I have is yours. You see, having a relationship with the father is the first step. We see that in the younger son who returns to relationship. But in the example of the older son, the the second one, we see that it's not enough just to have a relationship. We also need to value that relationship. Are you seeking contentment? Do you wonder why contentment is elusive to you? Why, Why you never seem to be able to hang on to it? Well, first of all, I want to ask you, have you chosen to have that relationship with God? Or have you rebelled and gone your own way, seeking contentment on your own terms from things of this world or within yourself? But then secondly, if you do have that relationship, do you value it? Or, and I hate to say it, but this happens, folks, is it like that new TV where you were so excited to go buy it, you were so excited to set it up, and you watched your first movie on it, and it was amazing, and you went to bed that night with a smile on your face because of that incredible TV you had, but you look at it now, it's just kind of common. It's become rather familiar. You still have it. You you still like it, but it's just become rather familiar to you. Is that maybe similar to how our relationship with God has turned? The, The value has dropped a bit? Where rather than seeing everything that's available to you through that relationship with God, all you can find yourself saying is, where's my goat? Focus upon what you don't have, what you think would bring you contentment. Where's my goat? See, when we talk about this idea of inviting people to experience a life that's better with Jesus, we're not talking about a momentary, fleeting, resigned contentment. The secret Paul found, the one that he experienced, the one that he learned to live in, finds its source, its true lasting contentment, finds its source in the Father. That's available to all of us today. It's, It's available to you today. That when you enter into a relationship with the Lord, but then also hang on to that value where you value Him above all else in this world. Looking at how Paul presents this to the church in Philippi, in some ways he's already preaching to the choir because the Philippians have shown signs that they're already living this out. See, as we continue in this passage, Paul points out this is not the first time they've supported him. They've actually been long-term partners in ministry with Paul. And their long-term partnership has been expressed through incredible generosity. And this generosity is a concrete demonstration that they value the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ above any material or above any financial realities that they have in their lives. He says this in verse 14 through 17. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. You see, by them contributing and, and partnering with Paul, they were, even though at a distance, they were still sharing in the troubles he was experiencing. But he continues, Moreover, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than one time when I was in need. Not that I desired your gifts, 
But what I desire is that more and more be credited to your account. See, based upon the New Testament accounts that we can read about these churches, we know a couple things about the church in Philippi. Number one, we know that they were a very poor church. In, in 2 Corinthians, it talks about how they were amongst the poorest of the churches that Paul had established and, and ministered among. But we know this as well about them. They were easily the most generous church that he witnessed with. You see, and even in their poverty, from the moment they heard about the good news of Jesus Christ, from the moment that they experienced the transforming power of Jesus in their lives, they knew they needed to do something. They knew they needed to support this mission with Paul so that others could hear it and experience it as well. And so they started giving. They started giving their prayers. They started giving their encouragement, their friendship. And yes, even from the poverty which they had, they started giving financially. And if we could kind of summarize what Paul's saying here, he's saying that they did not find contentment in money. They did not find contentment in possessions. But even the little that they had, they were willing to give it away. Why? Because they valued the good news of Jesus Christ more than any of those things. And we see the same thing happens within the church today. You see, this is one of the reasons that people give towards ministries here at West Meadows, is to advance the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I know on one level, there are some people who see money coming into the church and all they think about is salaries and building expenses. And, and you know, folks, that's part of it. But here's the thing. Those are tools for a greater purpose. Those are not the end. Those are the means to a greater end. And the end is the advancement to the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, through your generous support and contributions to the church, we're able to provide compassionate care for the needs of those in our congregation and in our community. We're able to have a place that hosts a weekly food bank where up to 40 families a week come to receive the basics of life. We have a place where we can offer counsel, support, and encouragement, where we can be a lighthouse in the community. We have an opportunity for outreach and discipleship ministries through your contributions, through your support of the church. That allows us to have people who lead, who train up, who guide and provide groups that, that teach about the good news of Jesus Christ and help people who have entered into a relationship with him to grow deeper in that relationship. It enables us to strengthen the communities around us as we have partnerships with, with those who don't yet know the Lord and we can build relationships with them and we can serve their needs. It allows us to support missionaries who regionally and globally have dedicated their lives to the advancement of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we can come alongside them and just as the Philippians did for Paul, we can pray for them, we can encourage them, we can have relationships with them, and yes, we can financially support them. But also it allows us to have worship services, a place in people who are trained to lead us in worship. What a glorious thing for us to gather together, to have a place to gather together, to have an instrument that God can use for the advancement of his good news in his people and beyond so we can praise his name. Now, I know for some this whole thing of money is a touchy subject, but I got to tell you, I have no problem talking about it because I know my motives. <laughs> I know the reason that we talk about these things because just like Paul, he says in verse 17, it's not that I desire your gifts, I nor Paul am motivated by personal gain here. Neither of us are motivated by personal agendas here. He says he's not desiring their gifts. 
What does he desire? As he finishes verse 17, what he desires is that more would be accredited to their account. See, a little translation of what he's saying there is that they would experience continually increasing profit into their accounts. And he's using a financial term that some of us may be familiar with, this idea of compound interest, where you make a deposit or you make an investment and you receive interest. But over time, you receive interest upon interest, and it has this, this power to build incredible amounts of wealth on heaven and on earth. Now, some translations, if you're looking at verse 17, will speak of the fruit that increases. And that's also a bit more of a literal translation than we find in the NIV or the NLT. And here's why that's important. Because it's the exact same word. The word for fruit is the exact same word that Paul uses back in chapter 1, verse 11, when he says this. When he prays that the Philippians would be pure and blameless on the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. You see, he's speaking about the day when they will need to give an account before Jesus Christ of how they lived their lives and how they invested and used what he had entrusted to them. I got to tell you, folks, it will be a glorious day when those books are opened and the balance indicates that you invested in God's work and that you had received interest upon interest that was credited to your account. That will be a glorious day when we celebrate and praise God with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the advancement of the good news. But there's one more thing here. Paul gives us another reason, another reason kind of related to that, to that celebrating and, and, and investing in God's work. See, another reason that we are to be generous and to give in support of the Lord's work is that it's an act of worship. So we continue to the end of this passage as Paul again acknowledges their generosity he then refers to the gift this way in verse 18. He says it is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, and that it is pleasing to God. This is a clear allusion back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. We're back in, in those days and those times, based upon the purpose for which you would make an offering, you would take a particular item, whether it, it be grain or bread or a bird or a lamb, and you would place it upon the altar of the Lord. And as it was consumed by the fire, the smoke of the offering would rise up to heaven. And it would be a pleasing, sweet aroma, acceptable to God. You know, whenever I see that image, I apologize for this if you don't see it the same way I do, but my man brain kicks in. And I think about it when I come home at the end of the day and somebody in the neighborhood's barbecuing. And you get out of, I get out of my truck and I look around, I'm like, man, something smells good. And so I start looking over fences going... Who's that over there? What are they cooking? He started peeking over the fence because they got my attention. Well, that's the image that comes to my mind when I think about this. And I don't think it's necessarily too far from what is being talked about here. Where when we make these offerings to God, they're like this pleasing aroma that rises to heaven that gets his attention. And he says, that is a good and pleasing sacrifice unto me. What are we talking about here? We're talking about worship where we willingly give, generously give as an act of worship. And the type of sacrifice we're talking about here is not a sacrifice of atonement, meaning for forgiveness of our sins. No, Jesus Christ took care of that. The type of sacrifice, the type of worship we're talking about here is what's referred to as a fellowship or a thanksgiving sacrifice. You can read about that in the book of Leviticus. And the source 
of this, the purpose of this, is to enter into an express fellowship with the relationship with God. The purpose of the Thanksgiving offering was to say thanks to God that you valued him above the possessions he had given you, that you were going to use them for his purposes and according to his will, but you valued him above them and were willing to return a portion of them to him. And that was the offering we would give, a Thanksgiving fellowship offering. And so as we look at what God has blessed us with, as we look at our talents, as we consider the freedoms we have in our lives, the abilities, and yes, even the resources, when we put them to use for his purposes, that's a form of a thanksgiving offering. And that's worship. Paul wrote about this as well in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, or sorry, Corinthians chapter 9, when he said, whoever sows generously also reaps generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not on compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And if we were to continue reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and finish that passage, and as we continue reading in Philippians chapter 4, we see the exact same outcome. We see the exact same response to our generous offerings to God. And it says in verse 19, God will meet your needs according to the riches of Jesus Christ. Now, I just got to hold on for a second on this verse, and I just got to say that this is often misquoted. This particular verse in Philippians chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 19, is often cited by proponents of the prosperity gospel as part of the formula that you can use to manipulate God to meet the needs that you decide that you need in your life. Now, I haven't got time to go into a full unpacking of the prosperity gospel and, and the dangers of this teaching, but you know that's the type of question that we would love to cover during Pastor 411 starting next week. So maybe we'll include that in there. If you would like us to talk about and explain the prosperity gospel, send that question into pastor411 at westmeadows.org, and we'll put it on the list of things that we cover. Uh, but essentially for today, the idea of this prosperity gospel is that health and wealth are always God's will for everyone. And by following certain formulas of the law of prosperity or, or by doing hard work and having a positive attitude, it forces God's hand to pour blessings out upon you. But such a teaching, the way it's used, just wrenches verses like this and others out of context. In this case, out of the context of which we've been talking today. Because this verse is not saying that we give so that we get. It's not saying that we give so that we get or that we get whatever we want because we gave. That's not what it means. That's not what we mean when we say that we are inviting people to experience a life that's better with Jesus. And that's certainly not what Paul is saying in this particular verse. As we've seen throughout the book of Philippians, as we've seen in this passage today, God will meet all of your needs. And some of them, yes, they may fall into the categories of health and wealth, but that's not the promise. The promise is that God will supply for your greatest needs. And your greatest needs is your ability to face, to endure, to be victorious in all circumstances. In the midst of any circumstance, to find whether you are in plenty or if you are in need. If you are well fed or if you are hungry. If you are in plenty or in want. That your contentment is not based upon those things. But it is found in a relationship with the Father God through the Son. And that is true lasting contentment. And you can't put a price on that. Do you want to find contentment? I know I sure do. I want to live in that as Paul does. And when we find it, 
we can't help but just turn back to this idea of generous response, of praise and worship. You know what, folks? That's exactly how Paul closes this letter. Because as he ends his writing to this church in Philippi, he cannot help but be moved to praise and to worship. And so, as there's some things we've covered today that I invite you to, to continue to ponder, to process. And, and maybe you're even being convicted to maybe pray about some of these things. And at the bottom of the screen, you'll see where it says prayer. And you can just click on that and somebody will be there to pray with you. You don't have to write a long story as to what you're looking for prayer for. A, a single word, a, a short phrase, and, and our trained prayer partners will pray with you and for you in that private text box. And as you process and ponder those things, I hope that we'll be moved to a sense of praise and worship in, in that heart, in that thought. Let's close this message in this book of Philippians in the same way that Paul does. As he says in verse 20, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know him? Can you claim him as your God and Father? Because he can be today. Paul continues in verse 21. Greet every saint in Jesus Christ. The brothers who are with me greet you as well. You see, when you claim God as your God and your Father, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we're told that we're brought into the family of God and we have brothers and sisters. We, we are one of the saints of Jesus Christ who can greet each other. We're brought into the family of God. That you can go from being the lost son to who is a found son and a found son who is a celebrated son and remains in relationship with the Father and can find contentment in the midst of that in all circumstances. And folks, we look forward to the day we can gather in the sanctuary again, but, but until that day, when we can greet each other in that fashion, in that place, we continue to greet each other online through, through the chat windows, through the emails, through the phone calls, through the, the groups that meet online. But even though we have limitations upon us right now, the faith continues to grow. The church, the family, continues to grow. In verse 22, Paul says, all the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. The family continues to grow. Paul's encouraging the Philippians here, saying, even if it seems like the good news is slowed down or stifled because I'm in prison, by no means is that taking place. It continues on to the highest places. Paul may be in isolation, but you can't quarantine the good news of Jesus Christ. It goes out, and it continues to go out. Amen? And then the final words he shares. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the same grace he speaks of that transformed him from a persecutor of the church to a great apostle of the church. This is the same power that can transform your life and your destiny, that can provide for you this true contentment that you can value above all else that leads to incredible acts of generosity and worship. And folks, we never reflect the nature of God more than when we give. When we're moved to this act of worship, this ability to give back to him. Because he first gave to us. He gave us a son who paid a price to make this all possible. So that we could enter into a relationship with the Father. You see, all of us suffer from the same condition. We all have this sin in our lives that separates us from the Father. But God gave first. God sent his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And that was made possible as Jesus gave his life upon the cross to pay the price for our sins that was counted against us no more because he conquered sin, because he conquered death. 
And he wants to give you that gift of forgiveness today. It's available to you. Just like the younger son who strayed away, he was always able to return home. The gift was always available to him if he would choose to receive it. And you can receive that gift today. Gives you the opportunity to receive this life now and life eternal. And to experience what it means to have a life that's better with Jesus. If you need that in your life, if you want to hear more about that, again, I encourage you to hit that prayer button or contact the office throughout the week. We would love to talk with you on the phone or online or, or even set up a, a meeting with you in a safe place for us to meet at this time. Where you may find yourself today, if you're lacking contentment, if you're struggling with, with this idea of generosity, or if you just know and something in your spirit says you need that relationship with the Father, I invite you to pray with me right now. Heavenly Father, you know each person who is listening and, and watching right now. You know the challenge in their hearts. We believe, Lord, that the Spirit is speaking to each of us. It is trying to, to help us grow deeper, to press deeper into these relationships with you because you have so much in store for us, so much more than we could ever imagine or fathom. God, I pray for each of us, whatever that may look like, whatever that need may be, whatever that step deeper in relationship with you may look like, that, that we would have the courage to take that. That we would press further into learning what contentment looks like because it is found in you. It's not found in ourselves. It's not found in the world around us. It's found in you, Lord. God, I pray we would hang on to that truth and, and grow in the realization of it. God, for those who do not have a relationship with you, I pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ that they would surrender their hearts and their lives, that as you gave your life for them, they would give their life to you and they would experience the truth of these words. That these are not just ancient fairy tales and parables, and, but it is true and real in our lives and the lives around us. And it can happen again and again today. And I pray that it would, Lord. And I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for being with us again this week. As I mentioned at the start, we find ourselves at the end of the book of Philippians, a wonderful passage. Perhaps you want to go back and read from start to finish again on your own at some point and, and be prompted to some great verses, some great lessons we've covered. If you ever want to revisit some of the messages, they're always available online through our website, westmeadows.org, or you can actually sign up on iTunes and Google Play and listen to the sermons through there as well. Next week, we want to invite you to make sure you're with us. Again, Sunday at 10 a.m., we're going to kick off a new series called Pastor 411. And this is where we take your questions, and Pastor Andrew and I will divvy them up and take some time to do our best to address them and answer them. And uh, we'll kind of join in an interactive type of teaching time for a few weeks. And so if you've got any question about a passage of Scripture, a point of theology, uh, an issue of, of morality in the world around us, how do I respond to a situation in my life or family, send those in. And we'll do our best to address them next week, Sunday, 10 a.m., for West Meadows at Home. We'll see you then.